two verses. First one from Genesis chapter 11, verse 7. Come, God said, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. The second verse from the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. It's with that grace and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus that I would greet you this morning. Those gathered here, those who are um, with us through our cable broadcast or, or watching live stream or at some other point in time. May that peace be yours. Robert Fulgham, I don't know if the name sounds familiar, is the gentleman who wrote the book, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in... You know, you've read it. <laughs> I haven't read it, but I knew the title too. All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And so, of course, we, we look at that and, and it makes a lot of sense. He talks about you've learned to share and to play fair and, um, and to say sorry when you hurt someone and to clean up your own mess and so on. And those who are able to uh, follow those simple rules usually turn out pretty successful in life. Well, I would present to you that in, in some way, I would like us to think about the first 11 chapters of Genesis in that same capacity. Namely, that everything foundational for us as Christians and the Christian faith, the basic doctrines and, and answers to the incredible questions of life are all found there. And that to be truly flourishing and growing in faith and active in love, it's those foundations that must be part of our, of what we believe and of what we ascribe to. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. And I'm going to do something that not many, perhaps in the world, especially in the world of academia, those who, um, it seems unfortunately, the more sophisticated or the quote, more intelligent people get, the less likely they are to actually accept the words of Genesis and the Bible itself but especially the words of Genesis chapters 1 through 11 as being what they truly are, namely the Word of God, the inspired, inerrant Word of God, which tells us exactly what took place. Doesn't answer all of our questions, certainly, but it does give us the truth of what took place. Now, the first 11 chapters are quite a bit different, if you will, from the whole rest of Scripture because beginning with Genesis chapter 12, we begin the account of a man named Abram, or Abraham as we know him. 
And in a manner of speaking, you could follow from Genesis chapter 12 all the way through the end of Scripture and follow the history of God's chosen people and the way in which God interacted with them and I should say with us ultimately through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, his life, death, resurrection, and now the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the life of you and me as Christians today. From Genesis 12 through the current is the story of God's people. But prior to chapter 12, there's a whole lot of history and not a lot of detail. But think about what's in those first 11 chapters and imagine if they are in fact true as we would say we would have the answers to why we're here how we got here the reason that we're here the purpose for life we would understand God's order of creation we would understand that it was God who made us male and female, that it was God who had the plan of bringing a man and a woman together for marriage and procreation of children. We would have an understanding of what it means to rebel against God and what happens when we disobey God's commands and the brokenness that follows between us and other people, between us and the world around us and between us and God. We would understand how incredible it was that even back then in Genesis chapter 3 that God tells us that he already had a plan of salvation and was going to work it out. That there would be someone to come who would crush the head of the serpent. And like Adam and Eve, they could put, we could put our faith in that one. But Genesis chapter 4 tells us about that unfortunate relationship between Cain and Abel. Chapter 5 gives us um, a listing of all the uh, descendants of Adam and Eve. And, and yes, there are numbers in there for people's ages. I know some of us may feel at times like we're 862. But we can't identify with what life was like back then. But imagine if that is all true. And chapter 6 through 9, telling the account of, of Noah and the depravity of the world around him and, and the fact that God wanted to start over. A sign of judgment was the flood on the sinfulness of human beings, but at the same time, a symbol of God's redeeming grace. As he used that water and ark to save his people. And it's now generations, a few, past Noah that we come to chapter 11 of Genesis. Now the first thing to point out is that the descendants of Noah, he had three sons, of course. And uh, do you remember who those were by any chance? Larry, Mo, and Shem. No, Shem, Ham, and Japheth are their names. And that all of their children then are listed in chapter 10 of Genesis. And so that process and, and living, leading that genealogy is one. Yes, it's complicated, but 
How many of us in Frankenmuth know about complicated family trees? Anybody? Oh, wait, aren't you my second cousin twice removed from... Yeah. But there we have the story of, of God's people. And in chapter 11, now past the time of the flood, but certain within memory of what their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents had told them, we have these words in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. By the way, Pastor Adams, I like the way you said that. I'm going to trust his pronunciation because I would have said Shinar, but that sounds very uneducated. But Shinar sounds much better. And, and they settled there. Now listen to this. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, already in those words, the observant reader is going to remember God's words to Noah and his sons following the ark. And as they came off the ark and the world was now brand new, so to speak, God gave them a very specific command. Much like the command he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden, he said to Noah and their families, he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You see what already may be signs of yet another rebellion against God's plan. I mean, how long does it take before people forget what God had just done? Certainly the accounts were there, but also our sinful nature is there. God made it clear he wanted them to, to fill the earth, to spread out. And almost in defiance of that, the people, the descendants of Noah said, no, we're going to stay right here. And in fact, we are going to build ourselves such a city and such a tower that nothing is going to be able to destroy it. Even if God were to send another flood, perhaps they were thinking, because instead of using mortar for their joints and their bricks, it says they used a type of tar. Waterproof? Perhaps. And they said, we are going to do this lest we should be dispersed over the face of the earth. Imagine that. People rebelling against God's plan. Those terrible people back then. I'm so glad that we don't know anything about that. I'm so glad that we have learned from the history of Scripture and the history of the world that whenever we become aware of God's plan, that we accept it wholeheartedly and we commit our lives to following it no matter what. We don't do any justifications. We don't do any type of excuses. We fully embrace God's plan and will for our lives. Amen? I didn't think so. No, not if you're like me. 
we are not that dissimilar from those of ancient times. We know what God's plan is. He's made it so clear to us. Unlike those folks, we have the Ten Commandments written in print for our hearts. We have God's Spirit that's been given to us to guide us as we celebrate on this Pentecost day. And still, we find it so challenging to do God's will. But notice now how God responds to this disobedience. And again, I can appreciate those who do not accept the Scriptures as as I would, as our church does, as the actual inspired and errant word of God. For reading this part of Scripture, it, it does raise questions because you have the Lord speaking and it almost sounds like, like he's concerned about his place in the universe. Notice verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have a one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Doesn't that, at least as it's written here and as we hear it through our ears today, it, it almost gives the impression as if God is afraid. He's scared. He's like, oh no, these people, they're going to gang up and, and, and they are going to overthrow me. And, and then what's going to happen? Of course, I, we have no complete understanding of why God chose to speak what he did, and to have Moses record what he did in terms of his dialogue with himself, and why it appears to us to be almost where some would say certainly that must prove that the Bible is a fable or a myth or a made-up story of human imagination. I don't know the answers. I certainly can't explain that. But that would be something that is left to the Lord in his infinite wisdom. But I can say this, I wonder if it's possible that, that the interpretation of, of seeing God as threatened by these people maybe could be understood in a different way. Because notice what it says. It says that God has a concern that these people are going to continue doing what they're doing. And what is that? Rebelling against God. Is it possible that this time of judgment and that these words of the Lord are actually an opportunity for God to demonstrate his mercy and grace as his children are wandering further and further away from them? Is this possibly the opportunity for God to put a roadblock in their way lest they continue down the sure road of destruction and turn them back to the way that he would have them go. For he knew the grief of what it was to destroy and pass judgment on mankind. And he certainly did not want to do that again. Is it possible that these words of intervention and that the coming of the Spirit that would cause their languages to be different is nothing more than an act of God's grace and mercy in the history of humanity. 
And that brings us to the concept of the Spirit. For the way that God chose to bring an end to this rebellion was to cause them not to be able to understand each other. Did this happen overnight? Was it a, a gradual process over years? We're not told. The context seems to be immediate, and, and maybe it was. But I'm not sure we can appreciate what it was like. Everybody speaking the same language, and, and all of a sudden, this one is speaking Greek, and this one Latin, and this one German, and this one English, and who knows all what it might have been. By the way, did you know that there's apparently in the neighborhood of 7,000 different languages on the face of the earth? And that when linguists put them into categories and see the similarities between this language and this language, and by the way, what a fascinating study to be able to track a language and see what language it might have come from and how this language and this language may have come from the same place, but because of of separation of peoples, they develop differently and so on and so forth. Fascinating field of study. But they're able to group languages into what they call families. And there are nearly 150 different family languages. But linguists, as is understandable, would maybe want to say, well, where did those 150 come from? Where did those close to 150 family groups of languages come from? And, and start tracing it back through, through history, through archaeology, through all of those things. And you know what? In an attempt to find the, quote, mother tongue, the original one, it's as if they all follow their family map, the family of language to a certain point, and the trail runs cold. In fact, one noted linguist in his study of all of these things, he makes this comment. He says something to the effect of, you know, there just might be a bit of truth in the myth of the Tower of Babel. Well, Shazam, wouldn't that be fascinating to understand that even in the linguistic world, there may not be an explanation of how the different languages of the earth ultimately derived. And yet you and I would know because it was the spirit that caused it to be that way. And as a result, they separated. In chapter 10 of uh, Genesis, there's a very interesting comment as it's going through the family tree, and there's an individual in verse 25 whose name is Peleg, P-E-L-E-G, and it happens to make this note. It says, and his name was Peleg because in his day the earth was divided. Is that a reference to what took place in Genesis chapter 11? The separation of peoples. That those who could understand their languages went together and, and separated one from another. And now, as we learn reading the rest of our Old Testament lesson, the point of God's plan is fulfilled that the people were indeed dispersed over the face of the earth. The Tower of Babel a sign of God's judgment on the rebellion of man. But at the same time, 
an opportunity for God to show his grace and mercy to his people. And now we fast forward to what we celebrate today. You notice the colors, right? It's not often we see red in, in our Lutheran churches on the altar and pulpit and lectern and, and on the stoles. It's not often that we sing these hymns that are all focused on the Holy Spirit and praying to the Holy Spirit and, and asking the Holy Spirit and celebrating the Holy Spirit's presence in our life. But how was that done 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead, 10 days after he ascended into heaven, his promise that he gave in John chapter 14 came true. The disciples and all of those who followed Jesus were gathering and the sound of a rushing wind came. And, and the appearance of that which looked like tongues of fire descended on each head. And now they were able to speak in a language that they had not otherwise known. And the crowd in Jerusalem from all over the world was there, and each one heard them speaking in their own language, and they knew something was going on. It was the Tower of Babel in reverse. Now God demonstrating what the power of the Spirit is all about, of bringing people every different language and nation and tribe and race? Wait a minute. Race. If, in fact, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are the actual account of history, then how many races are there? If a race is those descended from a common ancestor, then obviously there is but one. You and I, as human beings, are all related, not just to other Christians spiritually, but to every human being because of God's working in history. That we have commonality. As much as there's differences in, in color and, and body structure and appearance and language and so forth, the study of how those things all came to be, it all brings us back to be one. And isn't that what the Holy Spirit is all about? Bringing unity out of Babel bringing understanding where we may have no comprehension. It's fascinating that at the end of that account in Acts, where it talks about the signs and wonders of God the, and the Spirit working, that it closes with these words, it says this, so that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And that's what it's all about. Thanks be to God. In Jesus' name, amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.